Hi, this is Mike. Thank you for being a part of what God's doing at the Heights Fellowship. We hope you enjoy this message. We know it's not the same thing as being here in person, but we pray that God would move as you listen and as God applies this to your heart. that little book or little letter at the end of your New Testaments right before the book of the Revelation. As you're finding that on your smart devices or your hard, your hard copy Bibles or whatever it is, you guys online, we invite you to do the same. Uh, let me ask you a question. What do you think is the greatest struggle or the greatest challenge or threat facing Christianity? And I've given you kind of a, a list of things it could possibly be. Maybe it's persecution. Or maybe it's politics or culture, maybe it's something inside the church. I don't know which one you would choose, but if you chose internal church stuff, that's always been the greatest threat to the church. Jesus promised that the storm would come and the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, but the church has always struggled most and greatest with stuff that comes from within the church, from within us. And so this morning, we're going to start a series on the letter of Jude, which addresses those things. It was written in the late first century. It was what's called, what, what Bible students call one of the general epistles or one of the general letters. There's the letters of Paul and then all the others, one of the generals. Uh, it's uh, talking about, like we mentioned, the greatest threat to the faith and a lot of Bible students have referred to Jude because we don't talk about it very much. How many of you guys ever seen or heard a Bible study or sermon on the letter of Jude? You know, very few of us, you know, like one of us in this room. Thank you, Jeff. I don't feel alone now. Uh, but one of, the, one of the words or the phrases I heard often spoken of goes something like this. It's the text in the New Testament that's treated almost with benign neglect. We just don't ever... Talk, talk about it. Read when we, we get to the revelation, we're so excited about getting to that stuff, we just kind of breeze right through Jude. Well, uh, there, just so you know, in the passage of text we had selected today, there are at least four messages. There are two messages in verse one, there is one message in verse two, and at least one message in verse three. And if you go on beyond that, you can get about eight messages in the first seven verses of this incredible text. We're not going to cover all of that, and the real challenge has been, okay, how do we weed this down to just bite-sized portions? So today, we're just going to talk about the first three verses. We're going to kind of introduce it, talk about who Jude is, who it was written to, and what the point of the whole thing was. Here's how it goes. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all 
handed down to the saints. So here's the deal. Jude started out to write another letter, and God got hold of him. The Holy Spirit redirected him, and he goes on a detour. The Holy Spirit basically says, yeah, yeah, that's great, but we have a need, and I want you to address this. You need to talk to them about contending earnestly for the faith. So that's where we're going to go over the next several weeks as we look at this letter of Jude. We're going to spend a lot of time next week talking about this whole contending earnestly thing and why. Uh, we're going to talk about that. And so this morning, we want to first ask the question, who is this guy? Who is this Jude that feels the boldness and the audacity to come before the church and write this letter to say, okay, you need to contend earnestly for the faith? Well, there are two clues that are given to us in the first, first verse. He calls himself, first of all, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And secondly, and we'll talk about that, what that means here in a minute. And then secondly, he calls himself the brother of James. Now, when I said this morning that we were going to talk out of the letter of Jude, you guys had several thoughts. Some of you old dudes, some of you Beatles fans in this room immediately went, hey, Jude, right? In fact, I was asked, is that what you're going to call this series? And I was like, no, we're not going to call this series. I would have if you hadn't have asked, but you know, now that you've challenged me, no, I'm not. And some of you guys immediately thought of Judas Iscariot, Right? And you're like, man, why would, why would we want to read something written by him? Why would we want to read what Judas Iscariot wrote? Well, he didn't write it. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. But he's the betrayer of the Lord. And some of you guys went, oh, yeah, there was an Old Testament guy by the name of Judah. He was one of Jacob's sons. He was Joseph's brother. I remember us talking about him. Is that who this book is written by and what it's about? Well, like I said, there are two clues. Bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. You need to know that because of Judas Iscariot, you don't see too many people in our world named Jude or Judas. There are a few, but not very many. Because you don't want to have a bunch of little Judas Iscariots running around, right? But in the first century church, in the first century world, Judas among Israelites, among Jews, was a very popular name. For one specific reason, there was the guy in the Old Testament who's one of the patriarchs, one of the, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the, the son of Jacob, all that kind of stuff. But more importantly, in that intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a war. It was between the Greeks and the Jews. The Greeks had control of, Jew, uh, of, of Israel and the Jewish world. But something happened. They had a leader by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a horrible guy. Kind of had a small man's complex. He just, he just was constantly trying to prove himself. And so to make a point with the Jews that he was the king and they weren't, he took a pig and had it slaughtered on the altar in the temple. Well, you know what this does to the Jews? They freak out. And they rally. They're, they're like good Texans, man. They rally around and we're going to fight to the death. Well, they were led by a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus. It's called the Maccabean Revolt, if you study your history. Very, very incredible, important time in the life of Israel. Well, he was so good. The revolt was so successful that they actually gained their independence from the Greeks. Only be captured by the Romans later. But by the time of Christ, you remember the disciples and the people were constantly looking at Jesus going, it's now the time you're going to set up the kingdom. You're going to kick the Romans out. Well, they had a very near reference historically to the time of Judas Maccabeus. They wanted Jesus to be another military ruler like Judas Maccabeus. There are a lot of kids named Judas because of him. Well, Judas was dead. He'd been dead 150 years by the time of Jesus. So we know he didn't write this book. 
there's some other possibilities. There are at least eight people, by the way, listed in the New Testament, mentioned in the New Testament by this name. A few of them are, of course, Maccabeus, uh, Judas Iscariot, who, by the way, was now dead. Uh, he had died. You know, he killed himself after he betrayed Jesus. But then there's some others. There's a guy called Judas, the son of James, who was an apostle. Do you know there were two Judases among the apostles? Just It's a popular name, I'm telling you. There was Judas of Galilee, who was a terrorist, who's mentioned later. There's a guy called Judas, the brother of James, that we just read. And then there's a guy called Judas of Damascus. And lastly, there's a guy named Judas Barsabbas. Now, just kind of walk you through this. I think this is important. If you're watching the Olympics... Uh, at this point, you know, they'll show you a little bit of competition and then they'll do some sort of special interest story about the athlete and their family and their struggle and how they've overcome to get there and all that kind of stuff, who they are, that kind of stuff. Well, this is kind of one of those. We're going to get to the competition here in a minute, the contending here in a minute. We want to talk about this guy. It wasn't Iscariot. We've already said that. Judas, the other disciple, the, the disciple uh, named Judas besides Judas Iscariot is mentioned in Luke 6, 16. And he was an apostle. But it's interesting, if you read this letter of Jude, the writer of this letter doesn't claim to be an apostle. And you would think if he was one of the 12, he would say, when we told you about or we instructed you or we talked about this, he doesn't do that. He doesn't include himself among that list. So we're comfortable saying, okay, it wasn't this guy who wrote the letter. Judas of Galilee was a terrorist who had already been killed. Judas of Damascus was a believer in the early church, but we never hear anything about him after one instance. He's the guy God sent Saul to after he had the conversion on the road to Damascus. He told him, go to this house and see this guy named Judas from Damascus. He probably had become a Christian at Pentecost and gone home to Damascus. A few years later, God sends Saul to him, and he was the first guy who ministered to Saul after he became a believer. Kind of a cool story, but we don't hear anything else about him after that. And then there's this guy, Judas Barsabbas, and he was a leader in the early church. He was one of the guys, he was contemporary with Paul and Barnabas and Silas. He's one of the guys, when they made a big decision in this conference they had in Jerusalem, they had to get the word out to the rest of the world. Well, they sent word of that decision by four guys, Paul, Silas, Barnabas, and Judas Barsabbas. The only thing is, we don't really hear anything else about him, and he's not connected with the James. Which brings us to one other guy. Judas, the brother of James. Let's talk about James for a minute. James is a pretty common name in the New Testament as well. There are a couple of Jameses. There was James the Apostle, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, who wrote the book of James that we talk about. We'll, we'll get to that here in a minute. But he was killed in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. Herod said, hey, we're going to persecute the church, and so he killed James. James was probably loud and outspoken, so he was the first guy to, to get caught and, and killed. And that went over so well with the Jews that Herod said, you know what, we're going to kill Peter too. And so he arrested Peter and had Peter put in jail, but an angel came at night, if you remember that story, and released Peter. Now here's where we pick up the other James. James is dead, James the apostle is dead, but the angel instructs Peter, he says, listen, be quiet and go tell them how, the, or he, he, Peter tells the people, be quiet, let me tell you how the Lord brought me out of prison. And the angel says, go tell James. Wait a minute, I thought James had been killed. Different James. Now, who is that James? Well, that James became a leader in the church. In fact, I think he was the leader in the church. For my Catholic friends, you're going to take issue with that when I say that. 
that James was the real leader of the early church in Jerusalem. He's the one that they keep saying, hey, go tell James. Go talk to James. See what James says. People from James came to us, that kind of stuff. He's the leader. Well, who is this guy? Jesus appeared to this James after the resurrection. We find out in Galatians chapter 1 that this James is none other than Jesus' brother. And Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. This is the James who wrote that letter in your New Testament, the book of James. He wrote that. Now, why am I telling you about that James? Because Judas says he's the brother of James. Is this true? In Matthew 13, 55, we find this reference. The people of Nazareth, where Jesus was raised, who knew him well, were amazed at the stuff he was teaching. And they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is Joseph's son. This is a carpenter's boy. Is not his mother Mary? And not, are not his brothers, listen, James, who is probably the oldest, and Joseph, and Simon, and who's the baby? Judas. Judas, the brother of James. This Judas was Jesus' brother too. Now, in our world, if you're the brother of the most famous person in the world, are you going to let people know? Heck yeah, you are. If, you're, if you want to be an influencer and write a letter, that's just good press. That gets it out on the New York Times bestseller list, right? Is you, you, you shout that, hey, I'm Jesus' brother. Nobody knows him as well as I do. I grew up with him. This Jude doesn't choose to call himself that. Now, here's the deal. Judas never understood Jesus growing up with him. Can, can you imagine growing up with Jesus? Some of you guys, how many of you guys have an older brother or sister? A lot of you. How many of you guys have an older brother or sister that's like got a big personality, that's been pretty successful or notorious, whatever it is, right? And you're kind of in their shadow all the time. You ever been there? I mean, you go to class and like, oh, are you going to be as smart as your sister, as your older sister? You're like, oh, I hate her. Or, you, you know, are you going to be as much trouble as your older brother was? No, that's not me. Imagine growing up in the shadow of the most perfect child who's ever lived. Never did anything wrong. Oh, I hate him. <laughs> Judas never understood Jesus. In fact, during Jesus' ministry, that got to such an extent. Did you, do you know that Jesus' family wasn't supportive of his ministry in the Gospels? Did you know that? They thought he was nuts. And it was an embarrassment to the family. Over in Mark chapter 3, we see a couple of mentions about this. Jesus is teaching. It says when his family heard about it, they went to take charge of him. Do you know what that means? That means they went to take official custody. In our time, they would have gone to a judge to try to get an order of custody to take charge of Jesus and put him in a crazy house because he needed to be silenced. And in verse 31, there's some other stuff that happens in between, but in verse 31, they arrive. And they, the scripture tells us, then Jesus, who's the family that comes? It's Jesus' mother and his brothers. They come to take custody. They didn't believe him. They thought he was nuts. They thought he was crazy. In fact, we'll see throughout the whole ministry of Jesus that his brothers specifically, you know how brothers are, they were really antagonistic toward him. They weren't a whole lot of help. In fact, most of the time, they were trying to bust his chops. Over in, in John chapter 7, there's this story. Jesus is in Galilee, which is up north. It's a small town. He's up in small town America, small town Judea, or small town Israel. 
He's up there, and he's doing miracles, and he's teaching, and his brothers go to him and say, oh, you think you're so great. Well, if you're so great, don't do it here in the bush. Go to the show, man. Go to Jerusalem, because if you can make it there, baby, you can make it anywhere. Let them see your miracles. Let them hear what you're doing. Show yourself to the world. And then John makes a statement, because his brothers didn't believe in him. Imagine the stress on Jesus. Now, some of you guys have come to Christ and your family didn't support that decision. You know how this struggle is. Jesus' whole family thinks he's nuts, they're not supportive, and he's trying to go out and teach and do what he does in spite of all of that. Judas was one of those guys who was very antagonistic to Jesus, but something happened. There there was some event in his life that was transformative to him. What would make him go from, from being antagonistic to Jesus to saying, listen, I'm a follower? Somewhere in that, Jesus changed him. Now, we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to James, the older brother. Now, Jesus could have appeared to Judas, and the Bible just doesn't tell us. That's a possibility. There's another possibility, though. I think James was so transformed by Jesus. I think he was transfixed by his dead brother. James probably had had been to the cross during the time that Jesus hung there. His mom and the women had told him how Jesus had died. They had told him about wrapping the body in the burial cloth and taking him to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea to bury him and rolling the stone across of it and seeing the Roman soldiers seal the stone so nobody could break in and steal the body without an official scandal happening. They had heard all of those things. James is aware of that, but on the third day, Jesus appears to James, and it changed him from antagonist to bondservant. And what does he do? He goes and tells his brothers, what are you going to do in that situation? You're going to tell the people you're closest to, guys, we were wrong. He is not a fraud. He's not delusional. He, He really is the Lord, and he's alive. I saw him. I think James goes and shares with Judas, and Judas goes from antagonist to, in his own words, a bondservant. In fact, if you look at the opening lines of both letters, the letter of James, the letter of Jude, they both say the same thing with different names. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. What is this term, bondservant? Well, that's important to the next part of the message. Judas, he's writing, as he's introducing the letter and talking to the people that he's writing to, he says five things about them that are very important. By the way, these five things are true of us as well. He says, first of all, I'm writing to the redeemed. Secondly, I'm writing to people who are called, to people who are beloved, to people who are kept, and people who are blessed. Now, I don't know if you came this morning to church ready to hear that, you know what, you're redeemed, called, beloved, kept, and blessed. I don't know if you guys happened to trip across us online and went, man, I'm going to get a message about that. This is a huge thing. Now, what does he mean that we're redeemed? Well, he uses the term bondservant. I told you we would get to that. In the Greek, it's the term doulos, and we'll talk about what that means here in just a minute. But to be redeemed means one thing. It means you've been bought back off the slave market. 
It means you were a slave and somebody came and purchased you off the auction block. You are no longer on the slave market. You've been redeemed. That's what the word means. Let me ask you something. How many of you guys have either read the book or seen the movie that's out now called Redeeming Love? Anybody here? A few of you guys? All women. I noticed that. It's, a Francine, it's from a Francine Rivers book. I don't know if you know or not. It's couched as a love story. It's a gooey love story for the guys. The guys are going, yeah, there's a reason I ain't going to see it. I'm going to go see an action movie. You know, Marvel's got something coming out. I'm sure I'm going to see that. Well, it's a love story, but you may not know this. It's based on a true story. It's based on a Bible story. It comes out of the Old Testament book of Hosea. In fact, the protagonist in the story, his name is Michael, but his middle name is Hosea, Michael Hosea. And he's married to this woman who is a prostitute. And she's in this brothel. She's basically being pimped out. And he goes eventually and buys her from the brothel. He redeems her. If you read the Old Testament book of Hosea, God told Hosea, go marry this woman who was a prostitute. He has to go redeem her. See, that's what God has done for us. That's what Jude realized that Jesus had done for him. And so he's writing to those like him who are redeemed who've been bought off the slave market. Here's what the Bible tells us. It tells us in Romans 6, 6 that we are slaves to sin. It says in, in Galatians 4, 8, however, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature were no God. You were slaves to sin. And 1 Corinthians 7 says that we were bought with a price so we shouldn't have to become slaves to men again. So we were bought back. We were redeemed. You see, here's the point. Jude could have invoked family privilege. I grew up with him. I knew him. You need to listen to me. He could have used that as a way to impress and to advance his, his work and his influence, but instead he chose to self-identify as a simple bondservant, doulos. I mentioned that word a minute ago. In the scale of servitude, of slavery, you have your servants and your household slaves. In fact, there are other words he could have used. He could have used the word diakonos, where we, get, we use it to get the word deacon. That's a regular household servant who shuffles around. The, the word diakonos means through the dust. As, as he's moving his feet around to do the work of his master, he's stirring up dust doing that. He could have used that, and that's an honorable term. But he doesn't. He uses a more menial term, the, word, the term doulos, like I mentioned. It's the lowest form of servitude in the house. So you have servants who cook. You have servants who clean. You have servants who do the yard work or housework or do that kind of stuff. But, but doulos, you know what doulos, you know what they did? They cleaned up the messes. Lowest form of servitude. When somebody would come and visit, they would sit them down and the slave would come and would wash their feet. He would get down on the ground on his knees and, and take a towel and wash the feet of this traveler who had arrived at the house. That's doulos. And that's what Jude claims to be. You're a doulos because you have no will of your own. You've given up your will to the wish of another. Amazing that this guy who grew up with Jesus, who could have claimed and invoked that privilege claims to be something else, but it's true of us as well. Have you yielded your will to Jesus? Listen, you can't even get saved if you're trying to save yourself. You have to give that up. That's what repentance is. It's turning away from that and saying, I'm going to trust what Jesus did on the cross. 
1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, flee immorality. And this is important as we move into the next part of the, the message or the letter of Jude that we'll talk about next week because as we're going to see the people that he's writing about, don't do this. He said, every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now stop right there. How many of you guys growing up heard that verse in church? Now listen, guys, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's true. The Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit is, as it says here, who is in you, whom you have from God. But here's the part they don't say. You know what that means, that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? You don't own yourself. You're not your own. Sometimes we try to act like it as believers, but the truth of the matter is, God owns you. He redeemed you. He bought you off the slave market. For you have been bought with a price. And so your, your job now is to glorify God with your body. Peter says this, you weren't redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb. Jesus shed his life to buy you back off the market. Romans 6.19 says this, I'm speaking of human terms because of the weakness of our human flesh. Remember, you used to present your bodies, your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, and it resulted in more lawlessness. You just went from bad to worse. But now, now that you're a believer, present your members as slaves to righteousness, to Christ. That's bondservant. You're redeemed. You're forgiven. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're free now to follow Christ and be his servant. What that means is three things. The consideration is Jude could have prayed, played the privileged bro card, right? To be content to let Jesus be his king. But he didn't. The implication is that Jesus was now Jude's master, not just his brother. But the implication is he's also your master if you're a believer. If he's not your master, you're not redeemed. You still have yet to be redeemed. You're still a slave to sin. You're still trying to do things the old way. The application is that the people Jude writes to warn us about, that's them. They've not yielded to Christ. In fact, this is what he says in verse 4 that we'll get to next week. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed who were long ago beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly people who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny not only our, who deny our, our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. He says three things about these people that tells us they're not redeemed. First of all, they're ungodly. That's their character. Secondly, they're licentious. In other words, they think, "Listen, I'm free from sin. I can do anything that I want to." And he says about them, he says, they're the people you know who say, yeah, 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 God's good, Bible's great, all that kind of stuff, but I've got to work around for being obedient to Christ. I found a loophole, and so I can do this, so I'm going to do that. And Jesus says, listen, that betrays the fact that you have denied the master in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he says that we're redeemed, he's contrasting us to these people that he's going to write about. And not only are we redeemed, we're called. 
Basically, here's what it is. Called means that God chose you even before you chose him. It means that you didn't find God. God found you. You're the lost sheep. God wasn't lost. It's the word word kletos in the Greek, which literally means a personal summon. There's a general summons and a personal summons. A general summons would be like in in John chapter 7 when Jesus stands up and says, Hey, 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 listen, everybody. Listen, if you're thirsty, come to me. I'll give you true drink. Says that in John 7 37. Anybody wants to come, that's a general summons. But do you remember when Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee? He walked by Peter and John. He said, Hey guys, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. That's a personal invitation. When you get a personal invitation, you respond to that. To be called, that's a personal invitation. That's what a lot of New Testament theologians and scholars will call the effectual call of God because what he does, God moves into your life and wakes you up from your death. So that you're able to respond to him. It says in John 5, 21, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life, look at the last part, to who he wants. He chose you. A woman named Lydia listened to the the gospel and the Lord opened her heart. Did Lydia open her heart? No, the Lord opened her heart. He woke her up. He chose her. Ephesians 2, 5 says, when we were dead, unable to respond. No pulse, no nothing spiritually. God made us alive. He made the first move. He chose you. And I know it sounds confusing, but God never violates our will. He never violates our choice here. Look what one theologian says. He says, there's a mysterious wonder in this truth that the sovereign God effectually brings persons to salvation in perfect harmony with their free will to respond. There is a marvelous complementarity. I love that word. Never heard that word until this week. And mind-bending mystery to that. But God called them. He redeemed them. He called them. And, then, and by the way, the contrast to the called is the people he's going to write about who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation in verse 4. But not only that, they are, you are, Beloved people he's writing to. They're redeemed, they're called, they're loved. Now, some translations, King James, New King James, unfortunate rendering of that word, sometimes it's rendered sanctified or sanctification. God has sanctified you, which is true. It's just not the word used here. The word agapao is used 143 times in the New Testament, and it always means loved. And by the way, this is the only place that the term beloved by the Father is found, beloved by God the Father. You are beloved by God the Father. That means, first of all, that you are loved without qualification. You didn't have to do something to make God love you. Second of all, it means that God loves you in the middle of your mess. Like Romans 5, 8 says, while we were sinning, in the middle of our mess, Christ died for us. He loved us in spite of all of that. Number three, it means that God chose us to love us before we chose him. 1 John 3, 1 says, what manner of love is this that God bestowed on us? God directed it, bestowed it to you before you did anything. And the term what manner is a cool word in the Greek. The word literally means from what country? What an alien concept, in other words. What a strange thought. It's otherworldly. It's not human that God would love us in spite of everything that we've done. But that's exactly what he did. You're beloved in spite of anything you could have done. You've been trying to give God's reasons not to love you your whole life. God hasn't listened to one of them yet. 
and he won't. He has loved, you're loved because God chose to love you. And nothing can separate you from that love. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. If you look that passage up, he gives you a whole laundry list of things that can't separate you. And finally, he gets to the point, he says, or any other created thing. I've given you a list of things in my demons and angels and future and past and all, or anything else. Nothing can separate us from the love of of God. You are beloved. And not only that, because of the love of God, you are kept. It's one of Jude's favorite words. He uses it five times in 25 verses. The word kept means to be guarded, to protect, to keep from slipping away or escaping. And the idea is that your salvation, your eternity in Christ, once you are redeemed, once you're a believer, nothing can take that away. Not even you. You can't re-decide, no, 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 I don't believe it. Sorry, it's done. He's not going to take it away. John 6, 37 says, all that the Father gives me, I will never reject. John 10, 28 says, not only that, but once you're in my hand, I never let you go. Romans 8, 38 says, no one will condemn us because Christ sits at the throne talking to God about us constantly. What a great comfort. When you don't even know what to say in your prayer, you don't even know how your life's got, got any kind of direction. Christ is talking to, to the Father about you. Hebrews chapter 7 kind of affirms that says that he lives forever to intercede. So if he lives forever to intercede, is there ever a time that you can't stay saved? No, because forever he is interceding for you. Here's the point. Jesus' work on earth secured your salvation. Jesus' work in heaven maintains your salvation. Jude tells us that he's preserving a bunch of fallen angels, a bunch of demons for judgment. But he's preserving you. He's keeping you for his glory. What an incredible thought. He says in verse 24, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. He doesn't drag you by the ear to the throne of God and say, I got him here. You deal with him from here. You get there without fault and with great joy. You are kept. And lastly, you're blessed. Verse 2, he says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And I would love to spend a whole like 40 minutes on just this. We got to do it in about 40 seconds. Three things, mercy, peace, and love. You know, Ephesians 1 tells us that all the spiritual blessings are ours. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies is ours. Why did Jude, ask yourself this, why did you choose just those three? What's the point of mercy, peace, and love? Well, it has to do with why he wrote the letter. And why does he pray that not only that we know about them, but they be multiplied? The term to be multiplied means to, to be just increased to their fullest extent, to their greatest measure. Mercy, because that's the characteristic of God that moves him to even have a relationship with those of us who have no right to have a relationship with him. Mercy, the mercy of God, you need to understand this isn't blind. doesn't mean that God doesn't see our sin. He sees every sin that we do, that we commit. It doesn't mean that he's ignorant. It means he doesn't know about these things. He understands our helplessness. And it doesn't mean that he's, he's not dumb. 
It doesn't mean that, that God is unwilling to speak to this because, in fact, he has. He's moved to provide a way for forgiveness, and he's brought his compassion over us. In fact, the Bible tells us we're objects of mercy. You know what that means? That, that God keeps filling us up with mercy. You know how you guys do your water bottles when you go to the gym? You take that sucker and you fill it up with water and you drink it while you're working out. You fill it up again before you leave so you can drink it on the way home. That's an object of water. An object that you can pour whatever nutrition drink or water that you're going to put in there. That's what that means. You are that to God. He didn't make you and say, okay, you got a limit. In fact, Hebrews 4.16 said there's no limit to his mercy. There's plenty of mercy. And he just keeps pouring it on you. And keeps pouring it in you. Keeps pouring it in you. You're a child of mercy. And not only that, you're a child of peace. He wants peace to be multiplied to you. It's the same idea as the Hebrew word shalom. What shalom means? It means peace. It means wholeness. It means completeness. It means that God's prosperity is with you. It comes, first of all, for understanding. Man, the thing that limits me, the greatest limitation I have, sin, has been forgiven. I've been forgiven by my sin. Jesus said, I'm not giving you worldly peace. I'm not giving you some other version of peace. I'm not giving you some knockoff peace. I'm giving you my peace. And other places in the New Testament, it tells us this peace will exceed anything we can ever even think of. It exceeds anything we can understand in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. And love. Well, we've already talked about love a little bit. The scripture tells us as God's Holy Spirit indwells us that the love of God continues to be poured in us and within our hearts. Why? Because we need hope. Hope doesn't disappoint it because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. We need mercy to be multiplied to us so we understand we have the freedom to live and move and serve and contend the way God wants us to. We need peace multiplied to us because we need to understand that our sins are forgiven, we have no enmity with God, and we can proceed with confidence that we are serving Him. And we need love to give us the protocol, to give us the, the power to proceed by the Holy Spirit. Well, you got to have all three of those things if you're going to contend. He knew that our salvation and the way to it was under attack. The way of faith was being attacked. And he said, listen, you got to earnestly contend. The term earnestly contend is where we get our term agonize. You worked out so hard you threw up. I mean, if you've been in two-a-days football, you've been in volleyball run, you've been basketball runs, you know what that is. It's agony. You ever, you ever had to go work so hard you just almost collapsed? It was agonizing. He's calling on us in this day and this age to contend earnestly for the faith that's within us. So let me ask you four questions as we end. Question number one is this. Do you know the faith? More specifically, is it a part of you? Not have you heard about the faith, but is it you? This is me. This is who I am. I believe this, that Jesus Christ died on the cross specifically for my sins. I bring nothing to the table. God chose me. He wakened my heart to that truth, and I respond by faith to what Jesus did and completed on the cross, that he's risen from the grave. I respond to that. Is that a part of you? If not, maybe today's the day it needs to be. Secondly, how would you articulate your identity as a Christian? Who are you? Jude said, I'm a bondservant. 
Jesus is my master. Is he yours? Are you conversant in the faith? Because you're going to need to speak to who you are and what you believe. Do you know the faith well enough to articulate it? And are you willing to be a contender? Brothers, I wanted to write you another sermon. I want to write a sermon to talk about how great it is to be a believer. But God moved in me. And I got to tell you, there are things within the church we got to contend earnestly for the faith. That's what we're going to talk about as we move on. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this converted brother, Jude, who was angry and antagonistic and just was trouble until he got a glimpse and a word about the resurrected Christ. And there's some in this room who have heard about the faith. There's some online who've heard about the faith. Well, they're very aware of it. We live in America. You can't go two days without hearing it spoken online or hear somebody talking about it, but it's not theirs. It's somebody else's. But I pray today it would be theirs, that you would awaken their hearts. Through what we've sung and through the testimony that Beth gave and through the word that we've opened together, your presence in this place, Lord, you've awakened them to their need. I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven. I need to be redeemed. I'm a slave to sin. I need to be bought off that market. And Christ has done that with the blood purchase on the cross. Father, that they would just turn to you and say, okay, that, that's it. That's the one. I trust that. My journey ends here. Lord, I yield my will to you. Father, for the believers in this room, that we would be willing to agonize over the faith. And that would be our calling and our leading in these days ahead because it's so necessary in our world too. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your love. In his name we ask. Amen. Well, thank you for being a part of what God's doing here at the Heights Fellowship. If the Lord led you to make a decision or you have a question or a need, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at the email listed below, info at theheightsfellowship.org. And we will join you in praying as you take a step forward on your journey with God.